0: What is the independent state legislature theory? And does a potential Supreme Court decision embracing that theory threaten American democracy? Will the use of the doctrine raise the risk of election subversion or stolen elections? How far could the theory go in insulating legislative voting rules from state constitutional review? On season four, episode two of the ELB podcast, we hear a recent conversation that I moderated with Vic Amar, Derek Muller, Rick Pildes, Carolyn Shapiro, and Fernita Tolson. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Haston of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Today is the second of two episodes of the ALB Podcast featuring recordings of recent Safeguarding Democracy Project events. This episode, recorded on August twenty fifth, twenty twenty two, features an in depth conversation about one of the biggest cases of the upcoming Supreme Court term, Moore versus Harper. We have a really all star panel today. I'm, I'm thrilled that they're here. I'm going to give very brief introductions. You can find their full bios listed on the Safeguarding Democracy Project website. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order. Dean Vic Amar uh, joined the University of Illinois College of Laws, as its dean in 2015 after having served as a professor of law for many years at law schools in the University of California system, most recently UC Davis, where he served as Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs. Amar is uh, one of the most eminent and frequently cited authorities in constitutional law federal courts and civil procedure. Professor Derek Muller is the Boomer Fellow in Law and Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. And he's a nationally recognized scholar in the field of election law. His research focuses on the role of states in the administration of federal elections, the constitutional contours of voting rights and election administration, the limits of judicial power in the domain of elections and the electoral college. Professor Richard Tildes of NYU Law School is one of the nation's leading scholars of constitutional law and specialist in legal issues related to democracy. A former law clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall, he's been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Law Institute. He's also received recognition as a Guggenheim Fellow and a Carnegie Scholar. Professor Biden appointed him to the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Professor Carolyn Shapiro is the founder and co-director of Chicago Kent's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Her scholarship is focused largely on the institutions of our constitutional democracy, in particular the Supreme Court, and how those institutions interact. She has teaches classes in constitutional law, legislation, statutory interpretation, and public interest law. She's also the faculty director of the Constitutional Democracy Project, a civic education program that provides programs, professional development, and educational materials to high schools and middle school teachers and students. Vernita Tolson is the George T. and Harriet E. Flegger Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She currently holds a courtesy faculty appointment in the Political Science and International Relations Departments at the USC Dorans Life College of Letters, Arts, and Science. Her scholarship and teaching focus on the areas of election law, constitutional law, legal history, and employment discrimination. he's written on a wide range of topics, including partisan gerrymandering, political parties, the Elections Clause, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the 14th and 15th Amendments. As I said, I could fill the entire time with just the accolades and accomplishments of our panel, but I want to get right to it. I've asked uh, Rick Pildes to begin with a very brief overview of what is the independent state legislature theory, what's going on in the Moore versus Harper case. And then I'm going to turn to our panelists to briefly make opening statements on uh, what they think either the court will do or should do in Moore or on the independent state legislature theory more generally. And with that, let me turn it over to Rick Pilvis
1: Thanks very much to you, Rick, and to the new uh, Safeguarding Democracy Project and to uh, my fellow panelists here. Uh, So my role is to try to just describe the doctrine and some of the issues around it before we get into the the substantive arguments. Um, So the, the issue of the independent state legislature theory arises under two clauses of the US Constitution. And these two clauses give the state legislatures the power to regulate the manner of national elections for the House, Senate, and presidency. The first clause is known as the Elections Clause, Uh, which gives state legislatures this power for House and Senate elections, and the second clause is known as the Elector's Clause, which can be hard to distinguish orally, uh, which gives state legislatures this power for presidential elections. And the power to regulate the manner of these elections means issues such as early voting, whether it will exist, how many days there'll be absentee voting, and the rules requirements surrounding that, polls are open and, and most of the other issues surrounding the election process. And the advocates for the independent state legislature theory argue that these provisions mean that only the institutional legislature and no other actor, no other organ of state government has the power to regulate national elections in any way. Uh, that's sort of a simplification, but that's enough for, for present purposes. Um, Another way to put this is that the proponents argue that these clauses give the state legislature a kind of unique independence from the constraints that normally apply to state legislatures when they enact laws. Now, what does this mean concretely? One of the difficulties of answering that in a straightforward way, and one of the difficulties of discussing this doctrine in general, is the question isn't just whether the Supreme Court ends up recognizing or not recognizing such a doctrine. If the court does so, there are still a number of different versions of such a doctrine that the court might adopt. And the potential concrete ramifications of such a doctrine are gonna depend if the court goes this direction on which one or more of these versions of the doctrine the court might recognize. So let me uh, kind of drill down a little bit further on this. The, The most maximalist version of the potential doctrine which is in fact implicated in the North Carolina case before the Supreme Court, is that most state constitutions were adopted by constitutional conventions, which are not the legislature. So the argument is that these state constitutions cannot constrain state legislatures when they regulate national elections. And here's the concrete example from North Carolina the North Carolina legislature enacted a redistricting plan for the congressional districts. The state Supreme Court interpreting the state constitution held that this plan was an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander and that various provisions in the state constitution uh, prohibited partisan gerrymandering. So the advocates of this doctrine are now going to the Supreme Court arguing that the North Carolina court decision itself violates the U.S. Constitution because the state constitution can't tell the state legislature how it goes about using its federal constitutional power to regulate national elections. Now, another sort of maximalist version of this doctrine closely related to what I just described is that 24 states permit voters to directly enact legislation and voters are not the legislature. And so another version of this question is, are all the provisions voters have adopted that regulate the election process in various states inapplicable when applied or attempted to be applied to state legislatures regulating national elections? So these are issues about the role of state constitutions, the role of voter-initiated enactments. Now, another possible version of the doctrine doesn't apply to state constitutions or voter-initiated enactments. It applies to the way state election officials administer or state courts interpret state election law. And and here, the version of the doctrine, as it's being argued for by some, is that courts can't stray too far from the text of election laws when they interpret these state statutes. Uh, Now, let me just try to give you a feel for some of the concrete implications, particularly the versions that would make state constitutions or voter-initiated legislation unable to constrain state legislatures when they regulate national elections. There are lots of provisions in state constitutions or voter initiated enactments that do this. For example, voters in Alaska recently adopted a new structure for primary elections, which they're in the middle of using. Uh, It's called the top four primary election structure. And then the use of ranked choice voting in the general election. Washington voters adopted the top two primary Maine voters adopted ranked choice voting for national elections and state elections. All these sorts of provisions are potentially implicated by some of these more expansive versions of a, of a potential doctrine, which would take state constitutions off the table. Now, part of the reason this issue is getting so much attention isn't just merely because the court's taken the case, but because five justices on the current court in one form or another at one time or another have expressed support for some version of this doctrine. And the main argument they make for the doctrine is basically a textualist argument, that that word legislature in the constitution should be understood to mean legislature, the institutional legislature and nothing else. Now, in terms of Supreme Court precedent, and I'll close with with these points, the court has faced this issue three times in its history, Uh, Each time it's rejected a version of this doctrine. Early in the 20th century, the court held the state legislatures must still permit governors to veto national election laws if that's what the state constitution provides. Voters can also uh, use a referendum to reject a state election law for national elections if the state gives them that power. And then more recently in 2015, the court in a five to four decision held that voters um, could transfer congressional districting out of the legislature all altogether to an independent commission. So that just gives you a very brief kind of introduction to the doctrine, a little bit of a sense of what some of the arguments are, and maybe a little feel for some of the potential implications. And I'll stop there and turn it over to Rick again.
0: Rick has tried to just give us uh, an overview of the issues. Now I want to turn to the implications, what it means, where the court might go, where the court should go, and I want to start with Derek, and, and I think it's Derek. It's good to start with you because you've been very active on Twitter, I think, trying to disabuse people of the notion that this case has something to do with whether uh, fake electors could be uh, chosen by state legislature. I don't know if you want to get into that now or we can get into that later, but certainly there's been a lot of, I don't know if I call it misinformation, but a lot of misunderstanding about what's at stake in this particular case. Sure.
2: Thanks, Rick. And uh, thanks, Rick Pildes, for that opening. Um, yeah, I mean, I have some some mixed thoughts on the merits. And I have, there's so many complicated questions that, that really haven't been addressed. Um, I think the political question doctrine is an interesting one. I think there's a lurking a federal statutory preemption issue that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. I think there's this question of how much the federal courts are supposed to get involved in uh, state inter-branch disputes, which I know Professor Shapiro and others have written about. So I think there's a lot of complexity, but for this particular case, I view it as pretty narrow. Um, I view it as something that's not the end of democracy or the end of elections as we know it, or a lot of sort of the maximalist uh, ends of where the case might go. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh had suggested in one opinion, all oh, these cases keep coming up, um, which kind of inflates the numbers because it's a couple of kinds of cases that have come up to the court multiple times. And sometimes the justices write separately on these issues. So I, I wonder how often I'll come to the end, you know, as I as identify a couple of maybe recurring scenarios and why they're going to be lesser in the future. Um, but I want to focus instead to start with what this case isn't about, um, because there are a lot of things the case isn't about. And that sounds maybe a little Uh, playful to talk about. But I think it's important to frame it. But first, right, this doesn't apply to state elections. This doesn't apply to local elections. This is only applying to federal elections. And we can can ask ourselves about how much states would be willing to stray in terms of their federal or state elections and diverge them. Sort of a different interesting question maybe for the Q&A. second, this case does not deal with the opportunity of legislatures to appoint electors, presidential electors, after they've had a popular election. Um, this does not invite legislatures to throw out election results. This does not invite legislatures to violate other provisions of the Constitution, which I'll get to in a moment. But this notion that the legislature can do what it wants relates to promulgating rules pertaining to the matter of elections, not doing whatever it wants, unbounded, unconstrained by anything else. Third, you know, state administration of federal elections is still subject to federal constitutional oversight. That's the Due Process Clause. That's the Equal Protection Clause. Those are the voting rights amendments to the Constitution, the First Amendment, and associational rights. All of those still govern federal elections. Fourth, Congress has the power to step in and make or alter congressional rules. And that includes a number of provisions like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and UACAVA and HAVA and the National Voter Registration Act. And the list goes on. There are tons of federal statutes, and there could be more that regulate federal elections. Fifth, when it comes to states, most state courts lockstep their state voting rules to federal rules. And there's some divergence occasionally at times, but for the most part, when state courts are interpreting state constitutions and their free and fair elections clause, whatever it might be, very closely tracks what's happening in the federal courts anyway. So very rarely are we talking about some open-ended state constitutional provision that somehow constrains the legislature as the state courts perceive it. Sixth, and this gets to some points that Rick's raised, right? Um, That there are veto powers in the states. No one, I think, has advocated for a case called Smiley versus Home to be overturned. Um, North Carolina, interestingly, when it created the gubernatorial veto several years ago, expressly exempted redistricting from being subject to the gubernatorial veto. So had they had a veto, we might not have had this case in the first place, right? But they didn't want the governor to be able to veto maps. And that was a deliberate choice uh, in the North Carolina legislature. Um, Seventh, and again, we can think about the maximalist views, you know, it would call for the overturning of a lot of precedent, Davis versus Hildebrandt, Arizona State Legislature, even some of the language in Rucho versus Common Cause, to say that state constitutions that specifically constrain the legislature by state convention, by ballot initiative, by referendum – Those things have a lot of precedential support and would be very difficult to throw out without, again, doing a lot of sort of pretty significant damage to precedent. And maybe some people think the court would do that, but we can ask ourselves if there are five votes and it's not directly implicated, at least in this case. Again, maybe a question for another day. Eighth, state courts still have the power to interpret ambiguities in statutes and to use canons of statutory interpretation or construction to resolve disputes. It doesn't strip state courts of power. It might limit it in some cases. But to the extent the legislature has has passed a law and the state courts are doing what they normally do, which is trying to fill in the gaps if there's an ambiguity, state courts still have that authority. They might not be an independent check in some cases, like maybe in this case, but they still have a role. And finally, executive officials are still empowered to act within the discretion that the legislature gives them. Sometimes the legislature gives them discretion and sometimes it doesn't. Matters of state law, we saw recently in Wisconsin where the Wisconsin Supreme Court interpreting state law said, you know what, you election officials actually strayed from the legislative mandate under state law when you were issuing ballot drop boxes in Wisconsin. So there's still opportunities to exercise discretion when given to those officials, but not. So there's a pretty narrow set of cases right now, uh, I think, that are implicated. I'll mention two of them and sort of wrap up. Uh, The first are sue and settle cases where the executive enters into a consent decree potentially circumventing what the legislature has wanted. And that that can be problematic from the legislature's perspective. That's been lessened in some cases by states like Georgia or North Carolina passing statutes to require notice or allowing the legislature to intervene. And the second are cases like this one in North Carolina, where you don't have specific guidance in the Constitution. And in fact, North Carolina, for over 200 years, they didn't look at partisan gerrymandering as something in the Constitution. A few years ago, they said it was non-justiciable. And then this time they looked at this case and said, We find four provisions of the Constitution that cast some shadows to suggest there's an anti gerrymandering clause provision of the Constitution. So I think there, there's a relatively narrow set of cases right now. Again, there's potentially a parade of horribles that could come. <laughs> but focusing on this, these seem to be the two sticking places and perhaps suggest some, some limited places where more might have some effect in the near future.
0: Thank you, Derek. I guess you've tried to lower my blood pressure a little bit, and I appreciate that. I want to turn to Fernita. Uh, I'd say you literally wrote the book on the elections clause, but I guess uh, you're literally writing the book. On the <laughs> would be the way to say it. Um, Speaking
3: into existence, Rick.
0: Yes, please.
3: <laughs> um, so I come into this wanting Derek to be right like with every fiber of my being, I want him to be right. Because um, I think it comes down to this idea that, uh, and to go back to Rick's point about having different versions of this doctrine, um, and it, it becomes a question of what we can live with versus what we can't live with, right? Like I can live in a world where there's an independent state legislature theory that is a principle of interpretation that constrains what state Supreme Courts can do in situations like that. Like I can live in that world But I think the the reason that my blood pressure is high on this is because I always come back to the question of why do we need this? Like, why? Right. and, And to me, normatively, there's really no good argument for why we need this, because it ignores... Uh, the facts on the ground just in terms of the state legislatures are extremely gerrymandered, extremely undemocratic. Um, they tend to be places of chaos and not places of reason. And I think that's why I have this, this question just in, in terms of the normative question of why do we need this, even if there's a world in which I could live with a very narrow interpretation of the doctrine. The fact that there is a world in which this this maximal maximalist version can exist is problematic for me. Um, and, and with that in mind, I want to make... Um, really one big point and a few narrow points. So the, the question for me is whether or not the court in more adopts this minimalist approach or maximalist approach, or even some version in between that could allow a um let's just say uh courts hearing challenges in the context of the 2024 presidential election um they they call themselves following more and they're reading more to require them to apply this theory uh, more broadly than the the court applies it in the context of federal elections that relate to uh, representatives and senators right so they they look at this and they say the same rationale applies and they sort of lay the groundwork for more to apply in the context of article 2 section 1. So I just wanna make the point that I think uh, to hopefully forestall some of that, the language is very different, right? We talk about the independent state legislature theory as this coherent thing, kind of, and I think Rick's comments were really good, because he's like, look, it's really in, you know, a couple um, constitutional provisions that are at issue here. And um, to this point, so the elections clause, uh, you really do have this dance between the state legislature and Congress, right? So it speaks specifically about the state legislature setting the time, places, and manner of federal election, Congress can come in and make and alter uh, those regulations. So Congress is not without power here. And uh, Vic and Akil have a piece where they talk about this pretty extensively. Uh, But I think the electors' clause is a little bit different. What the electors' clause actually says is that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, right? This is different from the language of the elections clause. And I think it explicitly raises the question of who is the state um, on behalf of which the legislature deploys power, at least in a way that's not necessarily true if you read the text of the elections clause. And I think that the state, as referenced in this provision, really does apply to the citizens, right? When we talk about the state. It's not the institutional state legislature. It's not the state legislature acting um, on its own behalf. It really is deploying power on behalf of the state. And so to some extent, I think that this is a further constraint on the ability of the state legislature to completely ignore the wishes of the voting electorate, um, as expressed through their governing document, the state constitution, and how they deploy their power under Article 2, Section 1. So to the extent that the independent state legislature theory grows into this thing that also applies to presidential electors, I hope that the Supreme Court endorses Uh, the same textualist approach that it has applied in other situations in order to minimize, for example, the scope of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act.
0: Thank you. I want to turn now to Carolyn, who uh, has a forthcoming article, I I think, in the University of Chicago Law Review on this topic. You've been focused on issues of federalism, on issues of conflict within states and between states and the federal government. How does all of that play out in the context of this independent state legislature
4: theory? Well, it, it can play out in a number of different ways. But to start with, The way that independent state legislature theory was used during the 2020 election is really worth looking at because the cases that went to the Supreme Court during the 2020 election that raised ISLT concerns weren't about redistricting. Uh, They weren't the kind of narrow case that Moore versus Harper conceivably could be. They were much broader. They were they were cases that had to do with challenges to the way state Supreme Courts were interpreting state law as a matter of statutory interpretation and how they were applying state constitutional law to those state laws. And normally, that's not something that the federal courts have anything to say about, or the Supreme Court has anything to say about absent some equal protection or due process type of problem, which was not at issue in in those cases. And what several justices of the Supreme Court said more than once is that state courts were limited in how they interpreted their own laws, and they had to embrace a kind of special textualist approach that might be different from the way the state courts normally interpret statutes, or even might be different from the way the state legislature normally tells state courts to interpret statutes. Likewise, that the, the using relying on aspects of state constitutions to, for example, in Pennsylvania, extend the deadline for the receipt of mail-in ballots was was illegitimate as well. All pointing to the language of the state legislature in Article One and Article Two that we've been talking about. The thing that nobody on the Supreme Court, at least, talked about in 2020 is the fact that all of the laws at issue there were laws that applied across the board to state and federal elections. They were unified elections. They were everybody who went to the polls or who voted an absentee ballot in those states was voting for both state and local and federal offices. And it's not possible for, let's say in Pennsylvania, it would be unconstitutional in Pennsylvania, according to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, for them not to have extended the deadline for purposes of state elections, Um, but the US Supreme Court was asked to say, and several justices were more than willing to say, that it was unconstitutional under the federal constitution for the Supreme Court to do that with respect to federal elections. So what the setup here is chaos. Uh, We have a setup where after the fact, a federal court and notably the Supreme Court can come in and say, well, we don't agree with how you interpreted this statute, even though this statute applies to both state and federal elections without distinction. This is unlikely to come up in Moore versus Harper because what's at issue in Moore versus Harper is congressional redistricting and congressional redistricting only. But when we're looking at laws like those at issue in Pennsylvania in 2020 and in other states, if the law in question has to do with the way elections operate generally and apply across the board, I think it's the appropriate understanding of what the legislature did is to incorporate by reference the state constitution, all the normal practices of the state courts, whatever the normal practices for statutory interpretation are. And uh, and therefore, the ISLT really has no place at all when it comes to the interpretation or judicial review of those types of laws. That's not what several Supreme Court justices said, and I find that extremely worrisome.
0: Thank you. You seem quite skeptical of the doctrine. So let's turn to Vic Amar, (laughs) who is even more skeptical of the doctrine. Uh, Vic's article co-authored with his brother, uh, Akilah Amar. I don't know if it's already appeared or will appear in the Supreme Court. Yeah, it came out a month ago. It came out of the full title. I'll put it in the chat, but it has Bush League. Uh, dub, uh, play on words in the in the title of that article, making reference to kind of the, the roots of this uh, argument, which appeared in a concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore, the 2000 case that uh, ended the dispute over that presidential election. So let me turn it over to you, Vic. Thank you, uh,
5: Rick. And yeah, the piece I wrote with my brother is out in the Supreme Court review, it came out last month, Fernita uh, adverted to it. Thank you, Fernita. Um, so let me go back to framing remarks of Rick Pildes. Analytically, there are two questions that the uh, independent state legislature notion raises. One is how independent state legislatures are from other organs of state government, the state courts, the state constitution, the state peoples, etc. And then second is what, if any, role do federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular have in interpreting state law, whether it's state statutes or the state constitutions? It's possible that you could approach these things narrowly, but only because all of it's made up. All of it is just coming out of nowhere. And when stuff comes out of nowhere, you can do whatever you want with it. Um, uh, But let me just make clear that if you embrace the, the, the starting point of ISL, that state legislatures have primacy and they can't be constrained by state peoples or state constitutions or state courts, it's true that under federal law, state legislature cannot name electors to the electoral college after the election because federal law requires that things be locked in as of election day. But prior to election day, the state legislature has very broad latitude to say we rather than the voters are the ones on election day who will pick the electors. Perhaps informed by the wishes of the voters, perhaps not. but by midnight that day we will do the picking. And as long as they lay that rule in, in, in down in advance, if you buy out ISL, You can cut the state voters out of the loop, even if the state constitution is quite explicit in saying that the voters of the people shall pick the electors. So, too, with regard to post-election disputes in the presidential realm, if a state legislature says any disputes about who won the election shall not be resolved by courts, but shall be resolved by us, the legislature, if you lay that rule down in advance, Doesn't matter whether the state constitution says the state judiciary shall resolve federal and state election disputes. So this is a, a, it's a very broad, dangerous idea that if it's embraced in in its essence, that namely that the word legislature has some special meaning here um, can really undermine democracy in a big way. Now, why do I say this is made up? Well, coming back again, Rick P said, well, this emanates from the text of the constitution. And Fernita is exactly right. The text of articles one and two are very different. Let's focus on article two again. Each state, that's the subject of the sentence, not the legislature, each state shall appoint in a manner that the legislature thereof may, not shall, not must, not will, but may direct. If shall in Article 1 means mandatory, may has to mean permissive. ISL proponents lump all this stuff together um, as if the text messed But let's come back to the uber important word legislature. Does legislature mean an entity that's unconstrained by the constitution and the people that create it? Or is it a, is it a body, a representative body that is uh, is limited by the same entity that empowered it? And I think as a historical, as an originalist matter that the answer to that has to be yes. will give you just one analog that um, I don't think enough people are talking about. The constitution refers to Congress having the power to do X dozens of times. Sometimes it's clear that Congress has to proceed by lawmaking in the context. But there's lots of references where it's just Congress shall do this or Congress shall have the power to do that without any reference to lawmaking. And yet we always, with one exception in Article 5 amendment process, we always construe the reference to Congress as a reference to lawmaking under the federal constitution, which requires presidential veto or override. So whether we're talking about Article 1 or 2, the word legislature here does not mean some freestanding body. It's a reference to state legislative processes. So that's what the court said in, in Davis versus Hildebrandt, the initiative case, that uh, referendum case. That's what it said in Smiley versus Holm, the governor case. And that's what it said in Arizona in t- 2015. So th- this theory has no originalist support. It has no plausible textual support. It has no precedential support. And, and to say what well, could be narrow it could be broad I think that's right because it's all made up and you can do whatever you want and I just I'll just close by saying it'd be very rich to me that a court that goes out of its way in Dobbs to say we can't be making stuff up um, would even and flirt with a theory that is literally entirely made up and, and I, I want to hear people who support ISL to tell me why I'm wrong that it's made up. show me where the originalist support is or the presidentialist support is before before we even talk about where it could go.
0: Thank you for that. I want to turn back to Rick Pildes before I open it up, uh, Rick, to give you a chance to uh, take off your um, neutral explainer hat, especially after Vic's comments. Is, is uh, the ISL the Oakland of constitutional theories where there's no there there, or, or is there something more to it?
1: Well, let me pick up on, on something Vic just said and also something that Derek said. So there's a tendency to believe the word legislature everywhere it appears in the Constitution, which is 17 times must mean exactly the same thing each time. And there's a tendency to want to believe that the word Congress each time it appears kind of means the same thing. That's actually the basis for Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in the Arizona Independent case. Uh, He says, look, the word legislature, when the original constitution gave the power to state legislature to senators, that was a power the legislature had uniquely and it couldn't be interfered with. Um, So if that's true, and he assumes most people would accept that, then if you believe the word legislature means the same thing everywhere, um, then you have this kind of independent legislature understanding of the term. Now, Vic alluded to this. In fact, the word Congress doesn't mean the same thing everywhere in the Constitution. Because when Congress proposes constitutional amendments in its role as proposer of amendments, it does not have to submit those to the president. But that doesn't mean when Congress legislates, it's somehow free from the presidential veto. And you know, similarly with the word legislature, there are certain functions the state legislature is given in the constitution, like the ratification function, potentially, that may mean the legislature has that role independently. But again, it doesn't mean the legislature, when it's making laws as a general matter, like it does under Article 1, Section 4, the election clause, is an independent entity. And so I think, um, you know, if advocates go into the case saying there is no independent state legislature doctrine anywhere in the Constitution, they bump up against something Justice Ginsburg recognized in her majority opinion in the Arizona redistricting case, which is the right way to understand these terms is the Constitution assigns different functions to the legislatures and different provisions. And when they're just doing lawmaking, they're subject to all the ordinary constraints on state lawmaking. So that's just one point. Second, I want to pick up on Derek's interesting position that there are two main implications of the doctrine that he's kind of willing to accept or to entertain. Um, and the second was uh, that if there's no specific guidance from the constitution of the state, then the state courts can't apply those terms, those broader terms, to strike down state laws regulating national elections. Um, so what... Derek I think is gesturing at is a view that you can see may be reflected in some of these statements from justices that if a state constitution has a specific provision that for example uh, says, here's how primary elections are gonna be structured or partisan gerrymandering is prohibited, then state courts can enforce those specific provisions. But if they're enforcing provisions like a state constitutional provision guaranteeing the right to vote, or guaranteeing free and fair elections those don't provide specific guidance and so for state courts to interpret and apply those to constrain state legislatures violates this doctrine now the the problem with going down that path is you know first of all how do we decide how specific a provision has to be to be specific enough to fall on the right side of the line number one number two what about uh, the, the question of whether state courts have interpreted these provisions over time and taken a more general provision, as the U.S. court, the Supreme Court does all the time, you know, the First Amendment, or the protection Clause, you know, what if there's a developed body of precedent that gives more specific content to a general state provision? Does it then become permissible for state courts to enforce that provision? And, you know, does that mean in one state that hasn't yet interpreted Uh, a free and fair elections clause. uh, that state courts can't apply that clause, but in the state next door where they have a body of precedent on the same clause, then they can go ahead and apply that clause. So you can see the temptation. Some justices clearly seem drawn to the kind of position Derek was um, discussing. Even on that more minimal view, as Derek would put it, it opens up a huge can of worms about how specific a provision has to be and where it gets its specificity from and how much is enough. And I think that's going to introduce lots of litigation and lots of complexity if the court goes down that path.
0: Thanks, Rick. Since this is the Safeguarding Democracy Project with a great focus on the risk of election subversion, I want to focus for a few minutes on this particular question. And it arises uh, arises from what uh, Vic just said. I think everyone on this panel agrees that the independent state legislature doctrine would not provide a path for a legislature to, after the fact, submit a second slate of electors. I don't think any, anyone has, has made that argument. But Vic suggested something else, which is, does the a, a kind of a maximalist reading allow, let's say, the state legislature in, let's take Pennsylvania, let's say it's a Republican legislature, Democratic governor, for the state legislature to vote, They don't pass a law because the governor would veto it. They vote, they pass a resolution saying, you know, that that the state legislature should be the final arbiter of who the winner of the election is. Does the independent state legislature doctrine give state legislatures that power to act independent of the normal legislating process when it comes to choosing presidential electors, if they already have the power under Article 2 to decide how the, the electoral college votes should be chosen in the first place? So that's a jump ball question.
5: Let me take it then. Um, If you believe the
0: theory, the answer is
5: yes. If you believe that the word legislature has this primacy, this this importance, then um, it's true, as Derek pointed out, that no one's asking the court to revisit Smiley versus Holm. But that's part of the theory. Um, It's the legislature. It's not the government. The the reality is the legislature wasn't some uh, agreed upon entity the way we're assuming it was at the founding. Judges were part of legislative bodies. There was an amalgamation of courts and, and, and elected officials in all kinds of places. Bicameral versus unicameral, the, 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 the executive veto, these things all evolved over time in different places and in different ways. And so that's why they, we're, the, the, the ISL proponents, uh, they, they have a, a, a particular entity in mind and they're trying to project that backwards. I want to come back to something Rick Pildes said. You're right, Rick, that Ginsburg in the Arizona case bracketed the role of state legislatures in the Article 5 um, ratification process. Query whether she did that because there's a case, Hawk versus Smith, on the books that already held it. That's the one time you mentioned, you know, Davis versus Hildebrandt and Smiley and Arizona. Those are the three cases where the independent state legislature theory failed. The one case where it prevailed was Hawk versus Smith in the context of Article 5. I wrote an article about why I think that's wrong. And if, if it, it come out of sequence, I'm not sure that we would have said that the people of the state don't get to decide the ratification. But anyway, I think Ginsburg said that in part because she was trying to avoid uh, quarreling with past precedent and trying to fit her, her result into that. Rick Hasen, back to your point, I, I, I think the answer is yes, if you believe the theory.
1: I think the answer is no to that question, actually. State legislature is still bound by existing state law, and they can't just ignore state law without passing a new law. So if state law says this is how election disputes are going to be resolved, they can't just pass a resolution saying, hey, we've decided to do it differently. They're bound by their own state law that they have enacted, and there's no independent state legislature issue about that. And I think this is a point that actually hasn't really penetrated into the discussion but I think the answer to your question is actually a clear no. They they cannot act by resolution in defiance of laws that are on the books in the state.
3: I don't think that the dispute is going to present like that, though. I think that's why I'm concerned. It's not gonna be a situation where a state legislature is just weighing in after the fact and saying that we want a different outcome. It's gonna be in the context of some type of chaotic, confusing, you know, there there will be some issue as to whether or not there were irregularities in the election, regardless if it's just about people saying it versus actual evidence, right? It's just that I think the concern is not about something as clear cut as the state legislature clearly operating in a space where they are trying to change the election outcomes. I think the question is what happens in a situation where you may not have a clear winner or state law doesn't clarify on a particular on a particular point, what are the powers of the state legislature in that type of situation post-election, right? For me, that's not as clear. Um, I don't think it's just a matter of well, federal law says X, um, or you know, Congress will presumptively treat any slate of electors as valid if chosen by Y, right? It's more so a, a question of what happens in times of confusion, not what happens when just the state legislature prefers a different outcome. And I think that's my concern personally.
0: I want to turn to Derek and Carolyn and ask about the potential for federal legislation here, at least as to Article One, at least as to the Elections Clause, right? Congress or Congress acting with the president's signature, I assume, uh, has the power to override state laws. Is there something that could be folded into, say, the, the Electoral Count Reform Act or other federal legislation that could deal with these concerns? And, and if that only helps with Article 1, do we still have a problem with presidential elections? Let me turn to uh, Derek and then Carolyn.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad for for Fornita's comments because they highlight a separate level of complexity. (laughs) Thinking about distinguishing the elections clause from the electors clause, Um, I think again, there's a lot that Congress has done. There's a lot that Congress can do. There are lots of things in whether it's versions of HR one that can apply. There are things that can apply in uh, state elections too, if you're using Congress's power under the Reconstruction Amendments. Right. So there are ways that Congress can do it now. That requires political will from Congress. That requires consensus. That requires the ability to enact these provisions of law. Um, When it comes to Electoral Count Reform Act, you know, right now, again, thinking about the electors clause as being a little bit different, a lot of the emphasis has been on trying to focus on reforming the time of choosing electors. Right now, there's this sort of free-for-all provision from the 1845 Act suggesting that if you fail to make a choice, you can choose your own electors. And that, to Fernita's point, there's just tons of chaos. It was the fog of war in December of 2020 of people sprinkling things around to suggest, oh, well, that means we can do whatever we want. I mean, wrong as a legal matter, but a a danger to sort of float out there. Um, But saying instead, there's one election day It's on this day. You have to have laws in place by this day. We're going to resolve it by this day. By firming up some of those deadlines, we can at least shore up some of these concerns about post hoc rationalizations, about changes by the legislature. To Vic's point, you're right. There are things the legislature can do before election day, but we're on notice. There are other questions and challenges we can raise about it, but the timing I think does help pretty significantly, at least in some of these matters.
0: Uh, Carolyn?
4: Yeah, I agree that there's definite at least theoretical ability for Congress to to act here. Nick Stephanopoulos said on Twitter a little while ago, he said, you know, Congress could pass a one-line statute that says all parts of state constitutions and normal parts of the way states construe and review statutes are presumptively included in all state regulation of congressional elections. So that would eliminate the ISLT for purposes of congressional elections, for presidential elections, it is a little more complicated. But one additional thing that Congress could do, I think, and I think this has at least been discussed with respect to the Electoral Count Act, is to say that the Congress will defer to results that have been vetted through the ordinary judicial system through whatever the ordinary process of electoral, and and, and that it has to be through the judicial system. So that if there are election disputes, the state legislature can't say, well, we're going to be the deciders. We're going to run our own ninja audit uh, and decide who won. Instead, there's a process, and that process involves courts. And the Congress will defer to, to things that come out of that process. That's one way, I think, of reducing the potential harm that chaos and uncertainty could create.
0: I want to turn to something that Rick Pildes' framing talked about, which is, I can't remember, I wrote it down. If you called it uh, maximalist or expansive, I think were the words you used, there's kind of a range of what the Supreme Court can do here. I know none of us have a crystal ball, but for those who've read, say, Justice Alito's dissent in the refusal to, to put in a stay in this case, or Justice Kavanaugh's separate statement in a Wisconsin case during the middle of the 2020 elections do we have a sense of where the fault lines are on the Supreme Court? Uh, We have Chief Justice Roberts dissenting in the 2015 Arizona case, but we also have him writing in Rucho seeming to, and and Derek references, seeming to endorse the idea of of, um, state courts and state constitutions being ways of dealing with gerrymandering. So does anyone have any sense of where the court actually is and if the court, if there is a majority of conservative justices on the court that are going to do something, what that might look like and what the implications of that might be. But,
2: let me jump in with one brief thought. I think it's, to a point Rick Pilvis raised earlier, a malleable test invites the Supreme Court to be revisiting these questions all the time. Um, and I think that has got to make some folks like Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh nervous as they think about what line drawing looks like. You're going to rely on the state Supreme Courts to patrol this issue themselves. They're not going to. It's going to come up to the U.S. Supreme Court all the time. It's why I think this is a uniquely bad vehicle, at least for the for the petitioners, to try to address this issue, because it's not a black and white issue where the legislature has been kept out. The legislature can come back and redraw in 2024. They just have to do it within certain constraints. It's actually weaker than the, the Arizona case in some respects. Um, so my sense is, and the way that Justice Alito framed it to suggest some limit is the language he used in his, his application for stay uh, opinion. And the fact that Justice Kavanaugh didn't join in the application for stay, but said like, actually, no, I'm not going to stay this. Let's resolve this. Um, gives me some suggestion that to the extent the court, if there's five justices for it, I'm not sure there are, um, it's going to be something that's going to try to be narrow and provide something where they're not going to have to revisit this a thousand times uh, every election cycle. But but maybe, maybe I'm the optimist of this group and others will have other thoughts.
5: I mean, I think it's going to come down to Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. I do not see Chief Justice Roberts embracing um, this theory in any meaningful way, in part because of what Rick Pildis and Derek just said. A line that says, well, um, state constitutions can apply, but only if they're clearly uh, and textually applicable enough. And we, the federal courts, are going to decide when state courts have, have misinterpreted the, their state constitutions and when they haven't. I mean, I just don't see that fitting into any visual, vision of federalism that the chief has. And so, you know, I think it's all about getting Barrett and or Kavanaugh to see the folly of, of, of going down this path.
0: And you say that that despite what he said in the Arizona legislature case about, I think he called, uh, what do you call them? Jumps, the people who- uh,
5: But but as you pointed out, Rick, he, he wrote Rucho- and went out of his way to cite approvingly to a Florida Supreme Court case that invoked the Florida Constitution to invalidate partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. Right. He cited to, to he went out of his way to cite to initiatives in, in in Michigan and one other state that were on all fours with the Arizona one. That, uh, so I, I don't why did he go out of his way to do that? I don't know why the others joined that. Unless they didn't realize what they were doing. But he realized what he was doing. He wrote it.
4: I agree with what everybody has said so far. I expect that the Moore versus Harper outcome will be narrow, whatever it is, unless, of course, they say there is no such thing as the ISLT, which would be great, Um, and then we would be done. And I think that's possible. And one of the reasons I think that's possible is because there's been so much historical research that's been done since the 2020 election. We have these very strong statements from four different justices during the 2020 election embracing a real maximalist ISLT, including Justice Gorsuch thinking that he can just decide what state law means in without even really looking at what state law says, um, because he's a textualist. Since then, there's just this incredible wealth of research that just undermines any originalist case for the ISLT. There, The, the history is absolutely overwhelming, that it's not what was understood at the time of the founding that there has not it has not been consistent practice since then. There are a couple of outlier moments, but those are at best ambiguous and certainly don't outweigh this vast swath of history. So I think it'll be interesting to see how originalists on the court deal with this information that they didn't have in 2020.
0: Rick, you wanted to weigh yeah, up one yeah one thought I wanna I want
1: to interject here. Um you know I think that, that a number of the justices are obviously at least Initially drawn to the idea that that word "legislature" the text must mean something, and one kind of very narrow version of such a doctrine might be that courts can go ahead and do all the things they've been doing and applying oh. state constitutions and striking down provisions as unconstitutional, but the court then have to give the legislature a reasonable opportunity uh, to be the to take the first crack at remedying the violation. Because there may be an intuition or a belief among some of the justices that, you know, when the court goes to actually changing the law by saying this must be the remedy and bypassing the legislature and doing that, that may seem like lawmaking rather than judicial, kind of traditional judicial action. And that might be a very narrow, uh, it's probably the most narrow version of a potential doctrine uh, I've been able to come up with. And it would give something to the justices who believe that word has to mean something without massively destabilizing things in the way that the most maximal implications of of versions of a doctrine would create.
5: Although it would would leave serious questions about independent redistricting commissions of the kind at issue in Arizona, because those commissions were clearly legislating district lines and they're
1: not in any conventional sense a legislature. But if the voters, if the court accepts that voters, if if state processes allow voters to regulate, then that would also be
0: fine.
5: Then the question would be, have voters uh, empowered the courts to provide these remedies? And that would vary by state.
0: Well, I'm glad to see we've resolved all of these uh, thorny issues. But we're out of time and there's much more to discuss. It was a great discussion. I uh, appreciate the time that uh, you all spent with us today to talk about this And I want to remind you that we have other events coming up uh, this semester, so please visit safeguardingdemocracyproject.org and you can see all the events as well as recordings of this and other programs. Thanks to the panelists, thanks to you, and we'll see you again soon. The ELB Podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB Podcast is Melody Rowell, the theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition Jazz by the band BFN, used under a Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.